Hello and welcome to The Week in 60 Minutes, brought to you by Spectator TV and broadcast on Thursday the 4th of November. I'm Fraser Nelson. Coming up in the next hour, we look at Joe Biden's political crisis. He's back from the climate change summit in Glasgow, but he's found his party being defeated in the previously safe state of Virginia. So what went right for the Republicans and have they found a recipe for winning the next presidential election? I talked to Freddie Gray and Jacob Halbron. We then go to Westminster, where there's yet another Tory debacle and a scandal over lobbying and the government's botched attempts to reform the system under which MPs themselves are governed. I speak to James Forsyth and Katie Bowles about how the government managed to get this so badly wrong. Then we'll look at the COP summit. A former chancellor and former editor of The Spectator, Nigel Lawson, writes in this week's issue that it's all a little bit of a fraud, but is it? We talk to Gavin Schmitz from NASA and to Benny Pfizer from the Global Warming Policy Foundation. And finally, Klarna. Is it the new digital loan shark or the consumer spending tool of the future? I talk to Sela Creasy, the Labour MP for Walthamstow and scourge of the payday lenders, about whether she has found her new enemy. But before we get going, to make sure you never miss an episode of this show, do click on subscribe in the button just below me on the screen. If you click the bell, it will make sure that you're alerted every time a new episode of this show comes on. And if you want to try the magazine itself, we're offering a pretty good deal. For just £12, you get a £20 Amazon voucher and three months free of the magazine and full online access. And no, the maths don't make sense to me either, but it's there, spectator.co.uk forward slash TV offer for our trial subscription. Now on to our first item. What's the state of play in America? When Joe Biden got back, he found his party had lost the big race in Virginia, a state which he personally won by 10 percentage points just a year ago. So Freddie Gray, in his cover piece, portrays Joe Biden as a fallen Superman lying in the beach. Is that fair? We talked to Jacob Habram, he joins me now from a Vietnamese cafe in Washington, D.C. And Freddie joins me from, well, upstairs in the office in London. Freddie, are you being a bit mean to um, Joe Biden? All presidents will lose midterm election. How bad is this, really? Well, I'm, I'm well aware that uh, presidents can turn things around. Uh, I suppose the point of my piece is that the, the outlook is very grim for Biden on all fronts. It wasn't just... Uh, Virginia last night. I mean, he, the Democratic Party are failing all over the country. And more broadly, his job approval rating is collapsing. Uh, Americans who think the country is on the wrong track uh, are increasing. It's about 71% now. Uh, there's a general sense that the Biden presidency is a disaster. And it's uh, quite serious for Biden because for a long time, he just surfed off the fact that he wasn't Donald Trump and that he wasn't causing the sort of culture war aggravation that everybody thought that Trump caused. Uh, the trouble is now he seems to be leading over a country that doesn't know what it's, what it's doing. And that's a big problem for Biden. Jacob, uh, you supported um, Joe Biden, as did most spectator columnists who had a vote in the election. Are you feeling a bit disappointed now? It seems as if your, your man is beginning to lose the electoral coalition after just a few months. I think that, uh, unfortunately... I can't disagree with Freddie as much as I normally would with my usual vigor. Come on, Jamie, you can try, you can try. I was expecting that Freddie would be gloating this, this morning. He's being fairly restrained, but there is much to gloat over. And I think the principal difficulties that Biden is experiencing 
are not are that he's not wholly master of his own fate. The the ructions in Congress between the Democrats have turned into a psychodrama over these infrastructure and social spending bills. So Biden really has very little to show the electorate. And that was that certainly hamstrung Terry McAuliffe in the Virginia elections. This has been compounded by the almost parasitic infestation of woke ideology into American schools and colleges, which the Democrats kept announcing during the Virginia election that there was no such thing as critical race theory, that Republicans were making this up and that it isn't actually taught in the schools. Now, this is, I think, somewhat disingenuous. While it's true that this abstruse doctrine of critical race theory may not specifically be taught in the schools, it has become a, a code word or a, a broader term for both woke and cancel culture, which have become fairly pervasive in America. And in this regard, I think that Biden may need to have a sister soldier moment where he publicly divorced and emancipates himself from these ideologies. Right. But Freddie, this was supposed to be the great advantage of Joe Biden, wasn't it? He basically, he was too old to understand what work meant, doesn't understand what any of these initials meant. But the strange thing is that in Virginia, um, critical race theory was not taught in any schools, and yet it absorbed a lot of the political conversation. So at some expense, do you think the Republicans are riding on a kind of false narrative here? They got away with it this time, talking about critical race theory as if it was a real thing in Virginia schools, but it wasn't. And maybe their luck might not hold for that much longer. I think there's an element to, 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 into which that Glenn Youngkin, the successful Virginia, uh, now governor of Virginia, uh, exploited the fact that he could disassociate himself from Trump or the red raw elements of Trumpism, but he could still appeal to the sort of culture war fight over critical race theory. And he won on that basis. I think a lot of party Republicans are perhaps getting a little bit excite, overexcited about this. And they're saying we have a, we have a way out of, uh, out of Trumpism in which we can sort of take the, the good bits, the successful bits of Trumpism electorally, and we can get rid of the nasty stuff that puts off most voters. I think there's a little bit of over-enthusiasm there. This is just one, one result. But it definitely spells trouble for the Democrats because they are lumbered with Biden, who personally invested himself in this Virginia race and who ended up losing. And the fact that his intervention didn't just not help, it seemed to actually make the situation worse because his popularity is so bad. So going into the midterms next year, the Democrats look to be in serious, serious trouble. Um, Jacob, uh, when you look at who voted in Virginia, there's a very interesting pattern, a pattern that we hadn't really seen since Trump's first election in 2016. That is that the Democrat vote turned up as strongly as they thought, but there were the Republican vote turned up in even greater numbers, and it's where it turned up that matters. We're talking about the, the places outside the cities, the far stronger rural vote. In other words, it seems that the people who turned up for Trump in 2016, who didn't then show up in subsequent midterms, are for some reason coming back. So the Trump coalition is coming together at the same time that the Democrat coalition is falling apart, because we're hearing lots of, of civil war in Democrats. If you, if you look at Buffalo and New York, you've got there. Um, a, a competition between two Democrats. One, a self-styled um, social, socialist Democrat, the first socialist 
um, leader there for like 50 years, who was taking on a centrist democrat who therefore won. So we're seeing civil war on the left, but cohesion on the right. Is that a fair analysis? I think actually it is. Uh, not only was Youngkin able to mobilize the, the Republican Trump supporters, but he was also able to cut in deeply into the uh, independent voters by appealing on issues of education and taxes. So I put more credence into the Youngkin victory than, than Freddie appears to. I think Youngkin does offer the Republican Party a winning formula for the midterm elections. And indeed, I suspect that he will be a potent candidate for the presidency in 2024. Youngkin is not a professional politician. He is someone who is a highly successful businessman at the Carlisle Group. And he has toppled the last vestige of the Clinton empire. I mean, Terry McAuliffe was a constituent element of Bill Clinton's runs for the presidency. He's a fantastic fundraiser, but he also has a reputation as a sleazebag, to put it bluntly. Uh, this is a tremendous victory for the Republicans today. They're also appeared to be on the verge of winning the governorship in New Jersey, which no one had even expected. That to me is more telling than the Virginia election. The, the fact is, it's not the, the Democrats are whining that the problem is messaging. It's not messaging. It's the message that they're delivering. The message is not finding a receptive audience right now. And Freddie Youngkin's message certainly did. And I wonder what you think of Jacob's point that he could be a presidential candidate, because here is somebody whose tone, his language was quite restrained, not at all nutty like Donald Trump, yet was still unafraid to talk about critical race theory, the issues that obviously matter quite a lot to the people who voted for him. So is he proving that voters are being turned away from the sort of more radical aspects of Democrats and are willing to vote for a Republican as long as he doesn't sound like a nut? I think it's certainly true that if you can be branded as an extremist by the Democrats when you're clearly not, you're going to win votes. Because what Youngkin was doing was saying there's this critical race issue in critical race theory issue in schools and it's something that voters don't like. And the democratic reaction to that was you're a Trumpist Nazi, effectively, and you're a racist, and anyone who agrees with you is a racist. And a lot of parents who are worried about this said no, and these are not Trumpist parents, they are sort of independent parents who said no we don't like critical race theory in schools, we're going to side with Youngkin. And that's what got him his swing. I, I, my point about whether Youngkin can work as a future Republican candidate is, A, it's way too early, uh, but B, why, why do we think that the Republicans have suddenly found a formula because of one race? The point is they have fundamental differences between the Trumpist base that think the election was stolen. And it was interesting last night when the results were coming in a lot of the Trump people online were saying they're about to steal it, they're about to rig it, it's all about to go wrong because the Democrats are in charge. It, that, doesn't turn, that doesn't turn true. So do we, do we really invest faith in this idea that the Republicans are going to find some sort of happy middle ground between culture wars fighting but not Trumpism? So sort of amiable, media-friendly culture wars fighting. I don't think that's a recipe for long-term success, but I'm very willing to accept I could be wrong. 
Freddie and Jacob, thanks very much. Well, another um, Biden voter in our ranks is Lionel Shriver, who in her column says that she is worried that things are heading in a direction that might seem like Donald Trump and Kamala Harris coming towards us for a, a duel in the next presidential election. Lionel, thanks for joining us on Spectator TV. Um, what do you think is going wrong for the Democrats? Oh, God, where do I start? <laughs> um, there are two big stories that are going wrong with the Democrats. One of them, of course, is over, which is the shambolic withdrawal from Afghanistan. It was a very bad look, even for a population which in majority supported uh, the U.S. getting out. Uh, it, it was uh, badly done. Um, seemed un-American. Uh, disorganized, made us look bad internationally. Everything that Biden promised that he was going to fix. Uh, and of course, the other big story is immigration. Uh, ever since Biden took office, the border has been a free-for-all. And, you know, there are all these pictures uh, coming through on the news of huge crowds of people pouring over the border. Uh, Border Patrol agents actually opening gates to let them through. It's like, what's going on here? It looks, it looks as if we have a de facto open border policy. And that is not broadly popular. It's popular among a, a very narrow band of progressives on the extreme left of the Democratic Party. But for the most part, Americans support controlled immigration. They, can, they support immigration but they want it to be legal, um, and they want us to have some kind of, you know, command over who is, is allowed in and not. So uh, the column I wrote uh, this, uh, this week is about a story which is just perfectly designed to backfire. Um, listeners may remember that Trump had a very unpopular policy of... Uh, dividing families uh, of illegal immigrants at the border and separating parents from their children. Uh, I was surprised to uh, look up that it lasted less than a couple of months, but you would never have known it um, because ever since the Democrats have run with that story and uh, given lots of play to the, the terrible plight of of children who felt abandoned and um, had nobody to take care of them. There were instances in which nobody kept track of where the children were and where the parents were, so it became almost impossible to reunite them. The pictures were horrific, and uh, Democrats have made a lot of hay out of you know, so-called children in cages. Right. So the thing is, Lionel, the, the Donald Trump spoke about nothing more. Uh, well, he spoke about China, the Mexican border, two of his big themes. As president, he was going to build a wall. We all remember that. Um, but Americans decided that that sort of style of politics was just a bit grating. They turned away from it. Uh, Joe Biden was always going to. He always talked about um, if he's, one of his policies is offering an amnesty, for example, to illegal migrants and increasing the immigration cap, although he's moved back from what he was and proposing earlier on. But didn't Americans vote for a more liberal approach to the border policy and a more humane approach when it came to addressing the, the issue of, of parents separated from their children 
under the Donald Trump formula. I mean, that was, I'm sure you'll accept, that was a bad policy that does deserve to be redressed. Oh, it was bad. That certainly family separation was a terrible policy, and it, it did deserve to be addressed, and it was withdrawn by Trump himself. I mean, he, it, it backfired fantastically in the press, and uh, as it should have done. So, yes, uh, but I, I think Americans voted for Biden expecting a, a moderate policy. And, you know, it's, it's, or at least a policy. Actually, uh, Biden has not successfully passed any legislation that would address the large numbers of illegal immigrants already in the country, but he also has not got control of the border. And to the contrary, has sent out implicit messages to anyone who wants to come in that this is the time to do it. You know, Biden is going to welcome you. They're, these are mixed messages, but the real messages that matter are what happens to you if you cross the border illegally. Are you beginning to regret voting for Joe Biden then? No, I mean, what was the alternative? The alternative was to vote for Donald Trump. And I have never supported him and found his presidency very painful even though there are a few of, of Trump's policies that, you know, on an ideological or, or practical level I supported, uh, he gave them a, a bad name, you know. Supporting controlled immigration got a bad reputation because during the Trump years, it meant, oh, you want to build a wall, and, and, and of course it, 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 it meant that you, you were a racist, and he tarnished a lot of positions that are that would have been defensible uh, if he hadn't been backing them. Right, but despite that bad reputation, despite all of that tarnishing, you finish your column saying, I'm looking in wide-eyed horror as Kamala and the Donald in 2024 as if standing mid-motorway with two headlights of an HGV barreling towards me and not being able to move. In other words, you now envisage him coming back despite all of the rancor and all of the things which you yourself ended up voting against? Well, I can't stand Kamala Harris. <laughs> um, oh, and by the way, I have, I have tons of company on that point. She is wildly unpopular in the United States, and I was amused to discover in a poll in the Times recently, the London Times, uh, that she's just as unpopular over here. I mean, it's rather astonishing that anybody has an, in the UK has an opinion about her one way or another. But she's so disagreeable and also incompetent um, that, that she puts people off from 3,000 miles away. Um, so I desperately do not want to vote for Kamala Harris for president. But, would you but I also don't Trump? want to vote for Donald Trump. I mean, that's what I mean. It leaves me in a state of terrified paralysis. And I'm not one of those people who believes that, oh, you can refuse to vote and not get your hands dirty because that's a way of making your feelings felt. So I don't like either of these candidates. If they really are the candidates in 2024, then, then I will have to vote for one of them. And I would never have thought I would say this, but I would be a little torn. Um, because I think Kamala Harris would be a catastrophic president. And uh, I'm just, I'm really hoping something happens. Uh, just to ma make this not happen, that, 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 that's not the choice 
that the American people are are presented with uh, in the next right. election. Right, but, 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 but Lionel, you, you're sounding a bit, a bit downbeat here. I mean, in Britain, we have to choose, uh, as Prime Minister has got to be, one of the 650-odd people elected to Parliament. In America, anybody can be president. You can choose between 333 million um, ingenious souls here. So surely this, this country of yours can produce something a little more inspiring than Kamala Harris or Donald Trump. I mean, yeah, you, you would just... think. And, you know, th th this hits me in virtually every election. This is the best we can do. Um, it is freakish in itself that Biden, of all the people in the world, ended up president, uh, much less Trump. But these things are arranged way ahead of time. Um, and it, it is not unusual for not just someone like me who's merely on the sidelines despairing, but, you know, people who are central to the running of both parties to already be considering uh, whom we're going to run in 24 and, you know, how that's going to work out. Uh, and I, I think that there may be some possibility that Ron DeSantis uh, could give Trump some competition. Uh, he's the governor of Florida and has done a very good job of holding out against draconian measures during COVID. Uh, he's, Florida has some of the best COVID stats in the union right now. Um, but, you know, he would have to be, start being positioned hugely in advance. I will say that there is one optimistic note I could sound here. Um, I mean, I, for one, want desperately for Republicans to separate themselves from Trump. There's no reason that the positions that he represents necessarily have to be pursued by that man. Um, so the, the gubernatorial contest in Virginia, that, whose results just came in, uh, I, I find promising, and that's be, not just it's not just the absolute result of the R Republican uh, uh, Glenn Youngkin winning over against uh, a Democratic uh, uh, Terry McAuliffe candidate that uh, who was expected to win to begin with, but it's it's how Youngkin won, and Youngkin did not associate himself with Trump. He meant, went to considerable lengths to keep uh, from being associated too closely with Trump, while his opponent, McAuliffe, w went to equal lengths to associate uh, his Republican opponent with Trump. It didn't work. And I thought it was very promising that Trump stayed out of that, that election and that uh, Youngkin prevailed uh, in spite of the fact that he put distance between himself and Trump. In other words, the, this business of not necessarily trying to ride Trump's coattails and, and suck up to Trump and, and go for specifically for the Trump voter, uh, it worked. Lionel Shriver, thanks very much indeed. Now back to home, where Westminster has had a pretty strange week. We started not knowing if Britain was going to 
enter some kind of conflict with France over fishing boats, and we've ended with a conflict with the Conservative Party and the parliamentary authorities over how MPs should be governed. I'm joined uh, by Katie Bowles and James Forsyth. So, James, on the face of it, this looks pretty strange, doesn't it? So, Standards Committee finds against Owen Paterson, the Tory MP, and the Tories respond by saying, this isn't fair, let's get rid of the committee and set up one that we like the look of a little bit more. Yeah, and then even more strange, the government is then forced uh, by a backlash from the public and from the opposition parties and from its own MPs in, into uh, abandoning its effort to change the rules. So uh, on uh, Wednesday afternoon, Tory MPs were whipped to vote for uh, a new system that was going to start looking at reforms to a complaint system and the Patterson suspension was, was, was put into abeyance. Uh, then huge backlash, um, very, very bad front pages on Thursday morning for the government uh, and the government then, Jacob Rees-Mogg, when comes to a house uh, business uh, questions this morning and says, no, we don't want to proceed on the, the previous basis, we want to proceed on a cross-party basis. There will be a vote on the own Patterson suspension. And a Tory PPS, who lost her job for abstaining rather than voting with the government whip on Patterson, has now been reinstated to her job. It, it, it is a debacle of parliamentary management. It is a massive political mistake that put the government on the wrong side of public opinion on a very evocative issue. You know, British politics has still not um, entirely recovered from the MPs' expenses scandal. And I think there are a lot of very irate Tory MPs this morning who don't understand why they were, uh, you know, marched into this minefield and then marched out of it again. And James, just remind us, how much was Owen Patterson being paid by the lobbyists? Uh, I think it was something around £100,000 a year. Right. Um, Katie, isn't this, um, James mentions the expenses scandal. I mean, uh, it, you could said at the time, look, I claimed a, a duck house and expenses, but that was within the rules. I claimed a moat and expenses. Technically, I didn't break the rules. Aren't the Tories making exactly the same mistake here? They're saying what Owen Patterson did wasn't in the rules. By the way, that's debatable. But fundamentally, if you're taking 100 grand a year from a lobbyist, way more than your MP's salary, that's going to strike the public as wrong. So what is, why couldn't the Tories see that? So I think there's two issues going on here. One is the Owen Patterson case specifically. The second is uh, Standards Commissioner and how the Tory party generally view the Standards Commissioner. I think on the Owen Patterson case, as we touched on, um, two companies, uh, a report by the Standards Commissioner that really found that it was not just a minor breach of lobbying rules, but a major one um, in terms of contacting ministers and other. And ultimately, Owen Patterson's defenders say, well, Actually, he did this in good faith. It was for a worthwhile cause. And the investigation was flawed because uh, witnesses were never called that would have helped in his defence. You add to the fact that Owen Patterson says that his wife, um, his wife's suicide was connected to this investigation. And there are some who are troubled by the findings of the report but think there should be... Um, uh, ultimately, a special uh, measures put in to take into account the tragedy that he has suffered. Now... I think the, the issue is when you come to that breach, most people who read the report say, well, this is against the rules, even if it is well-intentioned. Now, I think where this has stopped being a case just about Owen Patterson, but a much wider issue that Tory MPs really fear could hurt them and add to this Tories Lee's narrative, is how um, Number 10 and the government were quite happy yesterday 
to use their own pattern case as a vehicle to ultimately move how you judge standards. And I think the idea of MPs uh, regulating themselves, MP, an MP committee deciding uh, what uh, rules and standards MPs should live by um, is clearly troubling and does have um, echoes to the expensive scandal. I think there are people who've looked at this and thought, have we not learned anything? This is clearly going to land badly. And we've seen in the past 24 hours that it has landed very badly with the public. But it means that lots of MPs are now just asking why number 10 thought for a second they'd be able to get away with this. James, that's a good question. You don't need to be Mystic Meg to imagine that this sort of thing will go down badly with the public. Now, we also hear that Boris made the decision after, well, he was, he was at Glasgow for the G26 summit. Now, perhaps he'd had his fill of all of this environmentalism because we then read that he um, then got a private jet, flew down to London, had dinner with um, our colleague Charles Moore. Uh, by the way, I can completely understand why you would want to do that, get away from the madness of COP and come and talk sense with Charles Moore. But it seems that between that dinner and the next day, a decision was made and people aren't quite clear how that decision was made. I've spoken to a few Tory MPs who are baffled as to the thought process behind this. And they see this as yet another sign of number 10 making decisions in a way which shows a striking inability to think about the political consequences. Perhaps because there's a chief of staff there, Dan Rosenfeld, who isn't uh, a politician, who doesn't really know much about politics. But it seems nobody there is really saying, Prime Minister, by all means do this if you want, but the political backlash will be absolutely huge and maybe you want to think twice before you're forced into a U-turn. Yeah, I think this is a decision that was tightly held. You speak to uh, some people who you thought might have been consulted on it uh, and they weren't. And there is obviously a blame game playing out at the moment. Uh, a lot of people are, are criticising the chief whip. Um, I'm told that there were backbench delegations to him on Tuesday and Wednesday saying... How do you think this is going to play out? This is, this is going to be a disaster. Um, not, not just for the Tory party, but for everyone concerned in, in the way that it has been. You know, in the, you know, Erm Patterson is undoubtedly in a worse situation today than he would have been if the Commons had simply voted on his suspension on, on Wednesday. And so I think, there is, I think this will lead to lots of questions about how on earth this happened. Because it, it, this, was a, this was an obvious political problem. Sometimes in politics there is a backlash to something and it, and it is unexpected that it, it is not on anyone's list of issues. I think you know, I think sewage, for example, which you saw recently as an issue, that was something which people didn't quite anticipate how controversial that was going to be. This was obviously going to cause a stink because, as you put it, quite simply, a Tory MP is found guilty by uh, the Standards Committee, and then Tory MPs seek to essentially reverse the verdict. That was always going to cause a row, and I think there will be. That, that Tory MPs are are angry because they think this is such a self-inflicted um, self-inflicted injury, and they can't see why they were trying what what anyone was trying to achieve. Because the other point about the report is that uh, the report acknowledges that Owen Baston thought he was doing the right thing when he made his various interventions, but I think the problem is is the sheer level of communication. 
you know, it's not like there was a one-off message to alert people to the problem that had been discovered. It, it's the continuing messages. It's the fact that the meetings took place on the parliamentary estate when, uh, when they're not meant to. And I think, I, think, I think it would have been much better to have accepted the Commissioner's verdict and then said, look, there are problems about the lack of an appeals process. There are problems about the fact that you know, this process would be better handled by someone with more legal experience to ensure that, you know, that it comports more to how a court would behave. Um, but these were all changes that would have been better done after the judgment had been handed down in this case, rather than trying to pause or reverse the judgment in this case. And Casey, is there a wider moral to this story? I mean, I, mean, I personally found it surprising that MPs were allowed to take... Um, £9,000 a month from lobbyists, more than they're paid to be MPs. You'd think they would say, look, um, if Owen Patterson did it in good faith, if he believed in the causes he was representing, fine. But tell them to give the money to the party, not to him personally, because there'll be a conflict of interest. That would be rather difficult to explain away to your, your average voters. So do you think there might be a, a wider question to be had here about whether MPs should be allowed to be paid to lobby for external companies while doing their parliamentary duties? Yeah, I think there could be. And I think if you look at some of the defences of Owen Patterson, this idea um, that actually he was acting as a whistleblower, and that's one thing. But I think then you look at the salary and the money attached and you start to think, well, this doesn't feel as a conventional, uh, as you might imagine, the whistleblower role. I think that one of the mistakes Downing Street has made in terms of how they've handled this is actually by uh, looking as though it's almost a club looking after its own, I think you increase the chance of um, people starting to say, well, should you really be having a second job? And going back to this debate about, um, you know, muddying interests and whether Westminster can be trusted to um, you know, go, even operate on their own rules, let alone bring in their new rules. And I do think... Uh, the way the story is going to go, I think there's going to be more scrutiny, more coverage of potentially, uh, you know, conflicts of interest within um, Westminster, within Parliament. And I, I don't think that's going to be comfortable for some MPs. And actually, as James touches on, I think there was a way to avoid this, um, but it's now taking on a life of its own. And I, I, that's not going to be comfortable for the government or many Tory MPs. Katie and James, thanks very much. Now, a reminder that you can get Katie and James's take on politics every day on Coffee House Shots, our free podcast. You can find it by typing in Coffee House Shots on your podcast search engine. Now, on to the COP26 Climate Change Summit in Glasgow. It's now halfway through, but are we really getting a debate? This week's issue has got an article by Nigel Lawson, a former chancellor and, of course, this magazine's former editor, where he says that a lot of his discussion is on a false premise. He's not convinced that there is a great um, tragedy about to unfold, and he was saying the solutions being proposed will make things worse, not better. Well, we also have a piece from Gavin Schmidt, who's a climate change scientist at NASA. He argues that things are every bit as bad as people say. He joins me now, as does Benny Pfizer from the Global Warming Policy Foundation, which Nigel Lawson helped to set up. Now, Gavin Schmitz, let's start with you first. Isn't it simply the case that the renewable energy revolution we're hoping for isn't going to come along in time to hit the net zero target? And as, as such, the conversation we're having isn't quite in tune with reality, unless we're talking about nuclear power, which from what I gather is banned from even exhibiting at the COP26 summit, then we're really not going to get to the whole picture that would allow Britain to transition properly away 
from fossil fuels. Well, let's take a little bit of a step back. Why are we doing all of this? Right. We have seen uh, over a degree change in uh, global temperatures. We're seeing that having impacts directly in heat waves and intense rainfall and in storms and in sea level rise and in coastal flooding and in intense precipitation. Uh, we are seeing the impacts right now of the climate changes we've already had. We know what's causing them. We know that it's being driven mainly by our emissions of greenhouse gases, particularly carbon dioxide. And we can predict what's going to happen into the future. Now, those damages are going to occur. They're already occurring. And if we don't stop the emissions, those damages will increase. And so now we have a situation where we know that certain activities uh, that, that we indulge in as a society are having harm. And the moral thing to do is to see if we can mitigate that harm. Right. And so the discussions at Glasgow, the discussions that are going on uh, elsewhere around the world uh, related to this are all about how fast can we stop doing that harm? It's not that complicated. Now, how that happens, how fast that happens, those are going to be very difficult decisions because it depends on the technology, uh, which for renewables has been getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Uh, it depends on how we um, organize our societies, what, what rules we mandate, what, uh, what subsidies we give, what, what taxes we impose. All of those things are going to affect uh, how much emissions go on into the future. But the key thing that comes from the science is the realization that all of the future warming and the future impacts are actually related to our future emissions. And so any reduction in emissions that we have going forward uh, is going to reduce damages into the future. And so every little bit counts. And so whether we can... Uh, uh, you know, have an argument, well, you know, is this conceivable by 2050 or by 2060 or by 2070? Uh, none of those re things really matter too much as long as we're on the trajectory that is reducing those emissions. And that's the only way that we're going to reduce those harms. But the question at COP26 is whether um, countries can sign up to a net zero pledge by 2050. Now, Britain's one of the very well, small well, that's not, of countries. Well, that's not quite right. So, so COP26 is the opportunity after five years after the Paris Accord uh, for countries to um, upgrade their independently determined uh, contributions to those reductions. Uh, and different countries are independently coming up with ideas about what they think that they can do. Right? Nobody is imposing that upon them. They are independently saying, we think that we can do this. Now, I don't wanna, uh, I'm not going to say that the UK can't do what it's saying or that China can't do what it's saying. Uh, I have to trust that they know what they're talking about because I can't go in and check everything for them. Right. Uh, but right. what's going on is that they're becoming more ambitious. And uh, by setting goals like net zero carbon dioxide by 2050, uh, they're singling um, and putting into place uh, in, by law in the UK uh, mechanisms and ways to get there. So, Benny Pfizer, renewables are becoming cheaper all the time. Therefore, I put to you that it's quite credible that things will develop in the way the British government says they will. Yeah, I, I was a bit cynical. Um, let's face it, what we've heard for the last 10 minutes is the kind of mantra we've heard for the last 30 years. But what's the problem with it? What has Gavin Schmidt said which is incorrect? Well, nothing that Western governments have done in throwing trillions at renewables have halted the rise of CO2. CO2 is rising steadily 
And if renewables were as cheap as Gavin claims, um, most governments would adopt them. The reason why we have the problem at COP26 is that China, India and the rest of the developing world can realize just how bad the situation is in Britain and in Europe with energy prices going through the roof and renewables causing all sorts of unintended consequences like yesterday where consumers had to pay 50 million to keep the lights on. So as I said, if renewables are so cheap as we've been told over and over again, there wouldn't be a problem. The problem is governments don't take this seriously. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the problem we have. Right, but Let's okay, be realistic. I mean... Realistically, CO2 emissions will continue to rise for the next 10 years. They're not going to go down. And governments around the world are not adopting radical decarbonization policies. And that's the, rea that's the reality. Ben, but, but, but let's look at the reality in Britain then. I mean, Britain is a country where we've decarbonized faster than any other G20 country over the last 10 years, no matter how much you measure it. Our CO2 emissions are now back down to levels not seen since the Victorian days. Renewables, the strike price of wind power is coming down all the time in a way far lower than people thought it would be 10 years ago. And sure, China isn't following suit, the world isn't following suit. But if you look at the model that Britain has adopted, isn't that a model where renewables take an ever greater part of the strain? And that's a model that China or India could one day adopt when they get rich enough. And all of a sudden, we can see a path for the world to hit net zero and for global warming temperatures to be restricted to 1.5. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great story. Unfortunately, no one around the world is actually buying into it. Otherwise, they would adopt the British model. What they are seeing is uh, Britain struggling and Europe struggling with an extreme energy crisis, energy prices going through the roof. And uh, we're facing uh, real problems with stabilizing the national grid. As I said yesterday, 50 million just to keep the lights on. So um, as I said, if, this, if Britain were such a trailblazer, many countries would adopt similar policies. The reason that most developing and emerging nations don't and are refusing to adopt these policies is they can see that they're not working. They're not working at all. Um, most of our manufacturing high energy industries have already moved abroad because you can't afford to invest in Britain if you use a lot of energy. It's far too expensive. In Europe, basically, those industries have to be subsidized left, right and center. So the reality is there is a deep divide, international divide. There's no way out. And most of the developing world for the next 10, 20, 30 years will use cheap, abundant, available fossil fuels. Right. That's the and all energy agencies are actually predicting that by 2050, still half of the global energy mix will be based on fossil fuels. Now, Gavin Schmidt, that's a, a fair point, isn't it? Because we all know that whatever Europeans may admit, and Britain is responsible for 1% of carbon emissions. So sure, we might hit net zero, but that, I, don't, I put to you, would that even move the dial on the global warming problem if, if we did that? And if it wouldn't, then we are looking at India and China. Now, in, um, China gets the majority of its energy now from coal-burning fuel plants. And as a country, it's still got GDP per capita, like a quarter of that 
of Britain, they've got a lot of poverty to eliminate. India's got 115 million people in extreme poverty. So they are not really going to go at a particularly fast pace because they need to get their people out of the hunger line. Now, once they do that, they might get okay. to our stage. So the interesting thing about uh, climate policy is that it intersects with all sorts of other policies as well. Um, one of the other main issues that, that, that is uh, plaguing uh, both China and India uh, is the problem of air pollution. Uh, air pollution, mainly from the burning of fossil fuels, uh, is causing hundreds of thousands of premature deaths in these countries. Uh, they have an absolute urgent need uh, to move away from polluting uh, uh, um, uh, energy sources. And they are doing so. Um, one of the things uh, that they're doing um, in, in India, uh, you know, they have open auctions for uh, new power supplies. Those auctions are being won by solar uh, um, uh, plans, not by new coal plans. This this notion that uh, that uh, that coal is cheap uh, and, and therefore everyone is using it, it's not cheap because they're having to pay the costs of the associated air pollution, uh, the, uh, the 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 deaths from uh, from coal mining, uh, the appalling conditions of the miners. Uh, fossil fuels are not uh, uh, this this wonderful panacea that is going to bring everybody out of poverty because if it were. Uh, they would have done it a hundred years ago. Why did that? Because we didn't have a technology. China's made incredible progress out of poverty over the last twenty years. It's gone from sixty percent oh, well, yes, to one percent in absolute poverty. And if you look at India's causes of deaths ago. right now, the fossil fuels are nowhere near it. You've got something like a million ch children in India die of diarrhoea every year. You've something like three million cases of um, tuberculosis. These are things that are linked to India's poverty. And when countries yeah, rise to their agrarian needs, they do so by living a bit more like we do in the West, and that means fossil fuel. Right. So, but, but, but the developing countries are not just adopting what we did with the same history. They are able to leapfrog a lot of the things that we did. Now, there is, there is never going to be a comprehensive landline telephone industry in India or China because they leaped ahead of that and now they have t cell phones. We can help them and they will help us uh, by helping uh, to both develop and uh, and uh, and manufacture uh, the technology that will allow them to get ahead of the problems that we've had associated with fossil fuels. Um, this is not this is not a uh, this is not an easy task, um, and it's clear that uh, energy needs in in India and other developing nations uh, are are very are very real. Um, but we can be helping them, and they can help us by doing uh, the, most of that with renewables. Right. Now, but, but, but Benny Pfizer, we've had China promise to hit net zero by 2060. That's a pretty big promise. We've had India promise to do it by 2070. Again, that's not to be sneezed at. So I put to you that the COP26 is actually producing some tangible pro um, process and it's doing it on a timescale which, sure, we measure in decades, but we measure our own pressure of progress in decades. What matters, yes. surely, is that the world's countries are now beginning to get agree to the decarbonisation agenda which um, Gavin Schmidt has just set out. Fraser, look, let's be real here. Um, China and India are making these kind of conditional pledges. You know, these pledges are conditional on trillions of dollars uh, having to be um, transferred from the US and Europe to the developing world. It's conditional. These are not kind of pledges we're doing this. No, they are only doing this if the money flows in their direction. And 
can I just say, let's forget for a moment India and China and Asia and Africa and the rest of the developing world. Let's forget all of this and look at the US. President Biden came to COP and made some pledges. No one believes the word he makes. He says, no one believes that he's trustworthy or credible. He can't even get his pledge through his own party, never mind through the Senate. The US is never going to give up on its huge treasure of fossil fuels, believe you me. There's no chance that the US will give up on oil, gas and coal for the next 30 years. Simple. All I'm hearing from you, Benny, is just excuses uh, for why nobody should do anything. You already I'm not saying admit, why you no already admit, hold on, that's not the way, that's not the truth. What I'm saying is the problem the West and the Greens and the climate activists have is they've basically made a huge mistake by believing that you can solve the problem of CO2 emissions with renewables. The problem is that the world is looking at the countries with high level of renewables and they are seeing all sorts of problems, whether it's rising energy prices, whether it's instable national grids, whether it's blackouts. If, if, and that's a big if, these kind of claims, with, you know, it's one minute before doomsday, we're facing extinction and so on. If that were true, governments would take policies where you can actually produce energy reliably and cost effectively and take the public with you. Give up renewables, go for nuclear, go for low carbon, natural gas, and then you can decarbonize. You cannot decarbonize the economy with renewables. That is what the world is realizing today. Gavin Schmidt and Benny Pfizer, thanks very much indeed. Finally, Klarna. You might have heard of it. It's a new buy now, pay later card responsible for pretty much a quarter of card transactions in Sweden is now coming to Britain. But is this a new loan shark trying to lure people into debt which they don't or not be able to afford to pay off? That's what Stella Creasy suspects. She's Labour MP for Walthamstow and she was instrumental in campaigning against Wonga, the payday loan company. Um, Stella, are you sure you've got the right target this time? Because Klarna is far, far different to what Wonga and the other payday loan companies used to be. Oh, yes. If it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck, it's a duck. One of the pernicious things about buy, na- buy now, pay later credit is that they're trying to tell people that because they don't charge interest, there aren't the same problems with them. But actually, these companies market themselves to retailers. So the retailers pay the fees and they market themselves on the basis that you will end up spending 30 to 40 percent more than you would have done if you'd used your uh, debit card or indeed a credit card to pay for things because the payments are spaced out. Fundamentally, if you can't afford something at full price, spreading out the cost for most people, especially with the cost of living crisis, is going to end in tears. And the similarities with the payday lending industry are that they are trying to get people hooked on their form of credit, as, as you talk about with Sweden. Well, last Christmas, one in four pounds in this country was spent using a buy now, pay later company. They get people hooked on this way of managing their money so that they're spending more than they can afford and it's ending in tears. What's different is at least with a payday loan, you could go to the financial services ombudsman if you thought you'd been missold credit. Because these companies currently aren't regulated in the UK, you can't go to the ombudsman if you get into difficulty with them. So there's no protection for consumers at all. 
Right. But you talk about it as if there are um, companies preying on victims. I mean, the article in this week's magazine was written by my colleague Gus Carter. He thinks that they're great. He says that he would quite like help managing his payments. And he doesn't like credit cards. His mum and dad taught him, he says, to stay away from Visa and MasterCard. He's doing that. But in Klarna, he gets a chance to spread payments over a number of times. He doesn't have the great, am I going to run out of beer money, his example, before, the, um, before payday. Um, so isn't it simply the case that a younger generation is seeing a different way of financing things and prefers Klarna's style of regular payments to having to worry if there's money in your bank or not and if you, if you can't repair the, the puncture in your, in your bicycle tyre um, you, and rather than negotiate a loan with Wonga, Wonga was something like 6,000%. Of course it was there exploiting people who couldn't afford to spend that 6,000%, but Klarna's 20%. So isn't this a generational thing? Aren't people like you and me simply too old to see that young people do want to use Klarna and I think the under 30s that is their demographic. Oh Fraser I completely agree with you that you and I are way past it when it comes to modern technology but there's a very simple premise here which is if people don't have the money to be able to pay off the bill they don't have the money to be able to pay off the bill and what we're seeing is a large volume of young people getting into financial difficulty with these companies because they aren't able to spread the payments they aren't able to budget in the way that your colleague Gus is talking about. That's why the Financial Conduct Authority raised concerns about the affordability assessments that these companies were doing, just as they did with payday loans eventually, that these companies are lending people money that they don't have to begin with. So it doesn't matter whether you spread the payment if you can't make the payment. That's the challenge that we face here. The additional problem is that there is no protection from being missold in that way. And what we're seeing is an industry that's evolving very quickly. You're absolutely right when it first started. And, and I would say, as I've always said with payday lending, there's a space for all these forms of credit if they're properly regulated and consumers are given fair information about them. But this industry is evolving incredibly quickly. So in the last couple of weeks alone, we've seen these companies being offered on betting sites and people using them to buy basics and food. And we're also seeing banks now offering buy now, pay later services and making an assessment as to whether you can afford to use that service which sounds like a massive conflict of interest, because as you say, the penalty when you can't repay is a debt and it's a debt with interest. Right, but, but Klarna has been going for 15 years now. I mean, I, I'm, I'm married to a Swede, I've got lots of friends and family in Sweden. And I'll give you two examples that really changed my mind about Klarna, because like you, I was quite suspicious about it when it came along. But here's the example. One is my sister-in-law. She loves buying clothes with Klarna. They send her a whole bunch of things. She basically, what doesn't fit her, she sends back. She only ends up paying for what she actually keeps. So that's quite effective. Previously, you'd have to buy all of this stuff and get a refund if it doesn't fit you. With Klarna, you can buy it, and send it back if it doesn't fit. You're never actually charged for it. That's helpful. I've also got another friend who runs a vitamin selling company in Sweden. Now, he was um, saying that his checkout, if you've got one click with Klarna, that helps him sell so much for a small company than having to do it himself. The payment technology is incredibly simple. Consumers like it. The reason they spend more is because they don't have to worry about what their credit card number is. They can do it on a click. Now, you're saying, what if they get all in terrible debt? Well, I put it to you, if that was happening, we'd see that in Sweden already, where Klarna has taken the market by storm. And said so the average balance of a Klarna account is something like £45 in credit because people don't really use it to get into debt. Compare that to Visa and MasterCard, where the average balance is a heavy negative. So surely, if what you were saying is true, we would have seen it by now in the many countries where Klarna has been active for quite some time. Well, 
don't take my word for it, Fraser, take the word of the Citizens Advice Bureau and which and step change the debt advice charities who are all seeing people getting into financial difficulty with buy now, pay later companies. Uh, what your sister-in-law describes is not to do with buy now, pay later. There are plenty of ways in which you can buy and send things back. That's not specific to that particular industry. But you don't have to pay for it until you, because that's, that's the difference. You, you, well, you do pay for it. You just don't pay as much for it. And if you are buying more than you can actually afford to, because it's not clear to you what the price is. And your second example is one of the worries that we have is that often um, buy now, pay later is the default option on many websites now because the retailers need to recoup the money they've spent on the service. It means that many people don't realize they've got into a buy now, pay later um, agreement. I am not here as I never, I never tried to get rid of payday lending. I wanted it regulated properly. I wanted to cap on the cost of credit. I still want to cap on all forms of credit. With the buy now, pay later industry, I want them to behave as a credit company because they are a credit company. And that means following the regulations that we have in this country about affordability criteria, about fair payments to consumers and about the processes when things go wrong. So that if consumers do get into difficulty, they can go to the financial services ombudsman. And the financial conduct authority research is pretty compelling as to why that is an important thing to do. The challenge for all of us is that that came out in January this year and the government finally agreed to our call to regulate these companies but we're not going to see that regulation until next year, which means we've got another Christmas and indeed Black Friday where these companies will be unregulated. And as I've said, they're evolving incredibly quickly. So it's not a question of whether these companies should exist or not. It's whether they should play by the rules that every other credit card company and every other credit agency in this country does have to play by. And at the moment they don't, and they're exploiting that. And our constituents are missing out accordingly. Right, I imagine quite a few of your constituents will be buying stuff on Klarna this Christmas. If you look at the way its market is evolving in Britain, it's quite a lot. It's not just Klarna, by the way. There are several of these buy now, pay later companies, after pay, and other similar ones. And but, I've met uh, with all of them, I promise you. <laughs> right, I guess Klarna gets the bad rep because it's, it's the biggest, it's the biggest all of these, or a good rep, depending how you see it. Um, but well, Klarna really... was also encouraging people during the pandemic, and that's where I got their adverts taken down, along with the brilliant Alice Tapper, who is a financial journalist who's been investigating them. They were encouraging people to spend money to lift their mood. You should never get into debt because you've got mental health challenges. And that's where the Advertising Conduct Authority rightly intervened to challenge them about the language they were using and the way in which they were promoting their service. So uh, all of these companies have challenges. They've all now recognised and welcomed the need for regulation, the question for all of us is how quickly that regulation can come in and how we make sure it's fair to all forms of credit. Right. So you're saying that as long as it's as long as it's regulated and right now it doesn't because it's new and nobody quite knows what to make of it. Then you would quite be happy with a Britain where Klarna was as big as it is in Sweden right now. I want my my constituents to have a level playing field when it comes to their credit options. I want them to have proper protections and be able to borrow in a way that is transparent and fair. I'm not here wearing a hair suit for uh, Fraser. The point for me is right now, this industry isn't regulated. It's very evidentially exploiting those loopholes as a result and consumers are getting into financial difficulty. The evidence that that is happening is piling up in this country. Partly, I think, because we have a different attitude towards debt in this country, perhaps to some other European nations, also because of the cost of living crisis that we follow. Frankly, if people have too much month at the end of their money, it doesn't matter whether they're using a payday loan or a buy now, pay later agreement, or indeed a credit card, they've got an issue to deal with. The challenge is right now, the best protection you have is to take out a payday loan because at least that cost is capped. We have a long way to go in this country, making sure that consumers can borrow in a way that is transparent and fair. And that's good for our economy because it's not good for our economy to build up massive amounts of personal debt that people can't sustain. 
Stella Creasy, Labour MP for Walthamstow and Scourge of the Payday Lenders, thanks very much for joining us on Spectator TV. Now that's it for this week. Um, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, you might want to consider subscribing to this show, which you can do for free by clicking on the subscribe button underneath the screen. If you click the wee bell as well, that means you get notified every time a new episode of Spectator TV comes along. Thank you for watching and thanks to Cindy Yu and Max Jeffrey, our producers. Thank you.